welcome to Vampire Month on the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this fourth episode for Vampire Month, I interviewed Jim Barclay, who flew the Vampire much later in its career than the three previous episodes have covered. Jim talks about flying the Vampire with Number 75 Squadron before he went on to the A4K Skyhawk. He also talks about his Skyhawk days, and also an exchange to the US Air Force where he flew McDonnell Douglas Phantoms. Here's Jim. Well, I want to welcome Jim Barclay to the show. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good, sitting in sunny Auckland. Excellent. Um, now, you were a pilot in the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and um, one of the aircraft that you flew uh, for a number of years was the Vampire. Um, I want to get into that. Obviously, this is Vampire Month that we're, we're talking about, but can we go right back to the beginning? Where, where were you born, and uh, where did you grow up? Born in Palmerston on the 2nd of August, 1947. And soon after that, when only months, I moved to Levin and then spent my formative years going to school and high school, early years of high school until 62. And then my father moved, he was in social welfare at that stage to, or social security as it was, to Stratford, the district agent. So I finished my high school in Stratford. And then I went back to Levin to work at a pharmacy there doing photography stuff until the lure to join the Air Force game. So in 1965, I think it was August holidays, I went and did a pre-selection at Wigram to be a pilot. And I had only got school C at, uh, at high school. And uh, the Air Force at that time had enough guys with UE, so they offered me an appointment as an administration officer okay. and uh, so I went to uh, well to Wigram in January 1966 and trained on the officer training course and went to Ahakia where soon after I arrived there about I don't know six weeks after I had my first ride in a vampire oh right okay so set the scene excellent how did it how did a a, a new administration officer cadet manage to get into a vampire well, I was an officer on base and they have a few drinks in the bar with guys and they take you for a ride and stuff like that. I think I did about, uh, I did a pre-selection, another pre-selection the next year, but I'd done a number of, gone a number of rides in Harvards and Vampires and Canberras and Devons and anything that was going. Um, and I did an unofficial flight grading with Barry Reed, okay. who was ex Central Flying School. And he said, this bugger can fly. So the base command at the time, uh, Gordon Tosland, recommended I go and do another pre-selection. And I know from my notes that came from the archives that uh, while the academic standard was a risk, he was motivated and he could, uh, he could handle an aeroplane. So I started my wings course at the end of 1967 and graduated Excellent. in September 68. Okay. Well, let's just go back to that first flight in the Vampire. What was your impression of it? Oh, I was totally hooked. I mean, who wouldn't be an 18-year-old in a, in a jet aeroplane? I had no idea how old the things were at that stage and what latest jets were, but uh, it was British for with the switches and uh, dials and levers and things all over the place. And I was able to compare that in later years with the American aeroplanes I flew, and the British were certainly one of a, one of a kind, so to speak, but it was uh, exhilarating, I have to say. Fantastic. Um, Okay, so you managed to pass the uh, pre-selection to get into pilot training. So where, where did you go from there? 
Well, I did my wings course on Harvards and Devons, uh, and then grad, we did what was called the officer's orientation, the OOT course, where you the idea was that you visited each of the operational squadrons and spent a few days or a week with them and flew in airplanes and talked to the aircrew. And then you supposedly indicated uh, what role you'd be wished to fly. And uh, if that met with your assessment off wings course, and if they thought you were a good bloke or otherwise, was there only blokes doing training at that stage, no females, yep. then you got the posting you desired. So I was posted in January of 1969 onto the Vampire at 75 Squadron, did the operational conversion course or the jet conversion course and then joined the op flight. Okay. So um, what was it like when you actually got to start training on the Vampire? Did, did you um, Were you still as thrilled as the first flight you had on it? Oh, absolutely. It was where I wanted to go and had my heart set on it. So I, I guess if I hadn't got to fly jets, I would have adapted to any role because you do, you're pretty excited at that stage. Yeah. But uh, there was uh, Ken Gafer, who was just up from CFS, and he, he always said he was about a week or two ahead of me in the conversion course. He was the flying instructor. And also Baden Perry, MAF King Baden Powell Perry, who was uh, back in the Air Force for a short term. And he was also the training flight instructor as well. So I started that with Dale Webb. He and I started uh, the jet conversion course that lasted until about oh, yeah, end of March, I think it was. Okay. So there, there were only three of you students only, in the course? Only two of us on the course. Ken was an instructor. He was a flight okay. and I was flying officer and so was Ed Webb. And that about that time, Ross Donaldson, uh, who was the CEO of the squadron, he formed the Yellowhammers aerobatic team. And uh, as soon as I'd finished my conversion to type, he told me to effectively bugger off for a month because he needed five aeroplanes for the team and five aircraft as spares or up to five. And there was no spare for anyone else like me who needed to go under the operation of conversion to use the aeroplane to learn air-to-air -air tactics, air-to-ground, bombing, rocketing, gunnery, and all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> that, that I did, and I went to visit family and stuff with my wife and my now tiny baby, Tracy. Um, and when I got back from that, I had a couple of flights, and we went to New Plymouth for exercise Keoklaw, uh, which was, uh, and we were on the base and attended camp uh, for something like about 10 days at New Plymouth. And that's when I had the first realization crisis is something uh, I've got a tiger by the tail here because with minimum amount of flying and virtually none in the previous month, I flew a, a Mark V up there and it was a short strip and I'd never been in a short strip I couldn't, that I could remember in a vampire before. And I thumped that thing onto the ground like you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Probably pretty intimidated by the whole affair, but it, it, uh, it, grew a bit of experience in the weeks handling uh, and flying out of New Plymouth and the T-11 and the Mark V. When you went on to the, the Mark V, the single-seater, from training in the, in the two-seater, was that much of an adjustment? Yeah, it was. It was a totally different layout. So you spent time sitting in the cockpit trying to familiarise yourself. Switch was all over the place. And instead of the big bulbous nose of the T-11 that stuck out in front and a seat beside you where the instructor sat, you were in the little pursuit jet all by yourself and uh, with your feet virtually on the front of the airplane it seemed and the little canopy stuff um, it was it was quite a revelation it was not as heavy 
I should say, it was lighter on the controls than the T11 and a hell of a lot of fun to, to fly. It had a spade grip uh, instead of a regular uh, pole grip with a, and an air brake or hand-operated hand uh, pneumatic brakes on it. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the Mark V a hell of a lot. One of the things that about it is a lasting memory, apart from one aeroplane, 51, all the rest had five fuel gauges and they were seated on the, on the bottom at the rear of the control column. So when you had to do a fuel check, you had to look at these five gauges that were bouncing away, average the bounce and total up the five of them and come up with a fuel check as quick as you could when if you're flying in close formation against the leader. So fuel check and so you total these things up. And <coughs> the T11 had a single capacitor gauge and so did the Vampire Mark V, the 50 inch, which I believe now is at Tauranga in their collection. Okay. What was the average day like once you got onto the squadron? What was your average day like? Generally, I think it started about eight o'clock with a Met briefing. Um, I think it was eight o'clock in the base, what was what was called the Education Centre. An OC strike wing who at that time was Maxi Hope, or had, had been Maxi Hope, and then Mo Moss would arrive in his Mark III Zephyr, blue with a flag out, pennant out, base commanders, and everyone, all the aircrew would stand up and the Met officer would give the briefing for the day, the Met brief and then activities and flight safety and stuff like that, and you'd disperse back to your squadron. Probably a squadron brief, I would say, from the boss or the flight commander of what was up for the day. And then the first wave, generally the program, generally I think was made the day before, and laid out so you go get change if you're first up on the sortie and get into your flying gear, brief with the instructor if that's what you're doing and off you go out to the flight line, sign for the uh, the Form 700 at the at number one hangar we had at that stage. Yeah, It's still there where you sign for the aircraft if you were the aircraft captain. And if you weren't, you'd get out, do the pre-flight, get yourself all ready for the instructor to arrive and crank up and away you'd go. So sometimes, one, sometimes, often twice, two flights a day, apart from later when we're doing gunnery sorties. And I used to laugh at the C-130 guys who thought flying hours was a big thing. And I pointed out that when you're operational, which was uh, ma ma maximum of three passes on the range with a 20 millimeter gun, I did five sorties in one day from Ohakia and recorded 50 minutes flying. So. <laughs> It wasn't all about flying hours. It was the, the number of times you'd completed the exercise or whatever you happened to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from Ahaki, it was get airborne, suck the wheels up into the world, put the guns live, switch the frequency to around my range, and then you come ripping in for the first pass direct, and then two more passes, and then you had to put the gear down, join down when and land because you'd fired the gun. So it was even a stretch to get to 10 minutes in the sort of stuff. <laughs> And one of the air traffickers, Gordon Day, was an ex-RAF. I think he flew meteors, but he was one of the many air traffickers, ex-RAF at the time. And he reckoned in a vampire, we should have been sort of calling vampire, whatever, 75 taxi, he should be saying, mayday, 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 because he said, you're about out of gas before <laughs> you, even, you even taxied the thing. <laughs> so was it a, a good gunnery platform, vampire? It was an excellent gunnery platform. Um, it was quite stable, or there's quite wide wings in a shorter aeroplane, and it had a good gun in it, 20 millimeter, 
and affixed, uh, harmonized for ear-to-ear -ear firing. Unlike the Skyhawk, I flew later, they were loose mounted for area coverage. Yeah. So an ear-to-ear -ear firing on the banner or an ear-to-ground, you could get some good scores, if not an ear-to-ear, because -ear, that was a bit of trickery, I reckon. But an ear-to-ground, you could certainly rack out some good scores. So it was a good airplane for those. Okay. Okay. And what other armament did you carry? Obviously, rockets uh, were used on the vampires, but did you also carry bombs at all at any stage? I do. Uh, yeah, carry practice bombs. Uh, I think it was about an eight and a half pound um, slick bomb, which is what you drop for both uh, dive bombing and level bombing. I don't think we had the what we call the beer can bomb, the Mark 106. I think that came with a Skyhawk later, and that was to simulate a high drag bomb when the fins or snake eye fins when they'd open up. Okay. So it was um, the rockets. I think we used two inch rockets at that stage, and they were eight. I think HBAR. They were quite accurate, and had been used. I think in air to air stuff as well. They generally fired them uh, single shot, and they were quite accurate even in the, the sometimes pretty bumpy and pre prevailing wind conditions at Raumai, you could sometimes get some good scores if you aimed off and up to one side. And for, for bombing, I think we did the low level skip bombing, but you also released in something like a 45 degree, 30 degree, 20 degree dive, something like that. Okay, all right. We did it at Raumai range. We also sometimes use kite for if we're based up at Whanurpai. Uh, and I remember exercise Kia Claw that we did, which was the bicentennial of the Cook, Captain Cook dis discovering New Zealand. Yep. And we all deployed to Gisborne and from there went to Volkner Rocks, which is out by White Island. So that was quite a novelty. And could be quite disorientated uh, doing dive bomb stuff over the sea if you've not done it before on a clear day with no visual references to get orientated properly. So diving at the sea was something pretty new. Ground features made it a bit easier. But... So primarily it was uh, Raumai, but also Kuiper and also Volkner. And sometimes there'd be in, some in the inland up by Wairu, the danger area, to drop, uh, drop bombs and fire weapons up there. But the, um, the exercise at Kia Claw brought some highlights of that, and uh, there was some laughs. We did a big fly pass on the, there were two fly pass on the one particular day. There was a civic ceremony down by the wharf end of the main street. And our flight leader for that was uh, Fred Myers, the US Navy Exchange pilot, uh, who came just before we got the Skyhawks. And he'd done a few practices the day before, We'd done one Diamond 9 fly pass on all the ships of the fleet. And there were lots of them from different companies. Uh, countries came into the harbour or into the general area. So we did a Diamond 9 fly pass. I think we may have done a fly pass practice for the main civic parade. But anyway, Fred Kinvig was determined to be on time and pretty low. And if he was low, which he was, you can guess that airplanes that were stacked below him were even lower. And John Scrimshaw was the squadron boss and he was in his best number threes. He was at the parade and he said, as we went by, the remaining five aeroplanes, including me down the back on the right, the diesel smoke enveloped the crowd as much as you could see pretty quickly. And we went up the main street and I've seen, I can see pictures of it as 
crowd lined either side of the main street and halfway up the street there was a clock down there just short of that there was a, a captain cook type sailing ship on a plinth and as we went up the main street we were really low i can tell you that and the laugh i had was uh co14 or had been co14 squadron pat neville i think he was a wing commander at that stage he was flying with jim jennings in number nine and he and when they said after we got on the ground was that low and he said christ low he said i looked from my from my seat in the vampire then i could see into helen stein's window the pair of underpants i needed <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good <laughs> uh, we landed after that one and then in the afternoon we did another one which was the uh one that, where the governor general turned up and i'll keep the names out of who was involved but there was a Fort Air controller with a radio stationed at the uh, at the showgrounds, and John Scrimshaw led this one, and he devised a cunning plan that we would orbit the airfield at about a three-minute radius. At any point around our circle, we were orbiting. He, when the governor's car got to the predetermined point, John would just turn the nine of us in, and we'd run into the dais and be dead on time from anywhere, anytime. Yep. for your first time ever well what actually happened was that uh, the tripass controller on the ground couldn't see the gate and it was something like i don't know three minutes from the gate to the dais so he stationed another officer he said you go and stand at the end of the grandstand when you see the car arriving at the gate give me a signal a hand signal and then i'll call in the boss and he can start the running well that was a good plan in theory but when some old lady went up to this officer by the end of the grandstand and said where are the toilets? He waved his hand. He said, over there. Whereupon the fly pass controller said, oh, here they come. So he called in the boss. And so we started the run in and then uh, the fly pass controller said, oh, hell, what have I done? Told the boss, no, no, turn around, turn around. So there were airplanes flying all over the Plymouth place. <laughs> and then we went back out and then came back in. And I think the governor general had about a half a dozen fly passes, the diamond nines of whoosh, 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 whoosh. <laughs> we're all trying to catch up so it was another disastrous bloody fly part oh brilliant w were you practicing every day on the squadron um were you out flying every day or did you get other work to do yeah there are other jobs i think i was a squadron agent because they thought i'd been an admin officer i knew which end of the piece of paper to push around yeah <laughs> but the you flew normally once sometimes twice a day for five days of a week okay um and there were other squadron jobs to do uh junior officers uh, for the flight commanders and the boss to make the squadron hum along and of course there was sport to play i used to like playing golf and stuff like that but others played rugby and whatever to keep you fit we went too much into running in those days that came a bit later when i went to 75 squad and had run tests and get rid of it get people fit and agile and uh, make them move around pretty quickly. But it's a hell of a lot of fun. It really was, it was a good time. And of course you drank, uh, had to go to the bar and let the, let the emotions of the day soak away as you had a few, a few, a few terps and stuff like that. Yep. yep. So I was, I was uh, at early stage, there was a, at the Western end of number one hangar, there was a, place we called the transit flat and as a junior officer with uh, a wife and a wee baby I was, I was lucky to secure it I think it was about something like about a pound a week 
and some extra extra pennies or something for blinds and bloody stuff like that. Yeah. But it was right on the edge of the tarmac and occasionally they'd run an airplane up literally 25, 30, 40 feet away outside the front gate of this little house we lived at. And Kelvin Brasted was the base uh, medical officer and also in charge of the aviation sports club. And he wanted this house that I was in, this little transit flat, to use as a club room. So he devised this cunning plan to say that he would declare the place uh, unsuitable for a family to live in, in which case I'd get priority to get a married court on base. So I was duly shifted out and he got the place he wanted and I got a, a house that was actually next door to Gavin Stathuri and Gavin's wife, Judy, and my wife, Joni, were sisters. So oh, there right. we lived next door to Adarahaka, a little hole in the hedge for the kids to run through. But there was good, there were good times, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, excellent. So how long was that actual conversion course before you got onto the squadron? I'm guessing I could look at my log, but that would bore you. But I think it's probably like a couple of months. You did general handling stuff first, um, and then moved into the instrument flying phase. And once you're certified as as capable as a, having gone solo, of course, and got an instrument rating. That was the end of the first phase, which was the conversion to type. Yeah. And that was then followed by an operational conversion where you learn to use the airplane for guns, rockets, bombs, and air-to-ground stuff, navigation exercise stuff, night flying, uh, air-to-air combat stuff with uh, because you had a gyro computing gun site, so you could... Uh, ear-to-ear stuff with radar PIs, we call them GCI approaches and stuff like that. Um, and that kept you pretty busy. So you had a probably a standard to meet. You'd probably generally fly like one or two dual sorties on weapons and then they'd send you solo on certain types of, and then that would maybe do bombs and rockets and then guns and things would come later. It depended what the rest of the squadron was doing, how the training flight fitted into, into the operational program for the day and for the week and for the month. So there was a steady different stages of flying. There are sometimes deployments, you go to other bases or sometimes to other airfields and operate out of tented camps as we've done a pilot training squadron on the Harvard. Yeah. So you moved around a bit and saw, but, but I think uh, for one aspect you're always mindful of is the vampire never had much gas and without drop tanks you could probably do about 50 to 55 minutes low level at I think around about 300 odd knots pilots being simple people you have to do things in multiples of 60, 60. <laughs> so uh, 240, 300 and then later 360 in Skyhawks 420 and stuff like that Right. That's the number of miles per minute you can do on the map, which is all done in nautical so distances. So you did a bit of nav training, of course, from time to time you'd have the drop tanks on, and you obviously could go further with those. And when you're doing air-to-air, one of you got checked out pretty quickly to fly the tow the banner, and you'd go up and down the danger, which is off the coast between about Foxton and Wanganui, sort of out to sea, but so you tow the banner up and down while the other guys would sit on the perch and roll off and fire their guns. And they had uh, paint 
different colored paint around the bullet. So red ones, blue ones, things like that. So when you got back on the ground, uh, as the fighters, you'd eagerly await the, the banner tow would come and drop the banner overhead the airfield and the armorers would pick it up, take it back and then count up how many red, if any, most of the time there'd be very few hits. Yeah. But, but you're pretty eager to see how many, the good guys like the Trevor Blands would hit it pretty regularly, but the novices like me, you know, it was a bit of an art to, to control. What was the uh, banner towing aircraft? A vampire. Oh right, okay. Yeah, generally a Mark V vampire. How did how did that work? Did 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 you take off towing the banner from the ground or did yeah, yeah. yeah they laid the banner out um, with a cable? I don't know how long it was, thousand yards. I don't know, guessing. Yeah. And the and it was laid along the side of the runway, further up from where you sat at the end of the runway, and then they pulled the cord all the way back and stuck it under the back end of the tailpipe, and there was a hook that, that, uh, that it was a release unit yep. that you could control from the cockpit. So you wound the vampire up and then let the brakes off, and then you got about, oh, I don't know, a 1,000 feet down the runway, and the slack of the cable, which had gone from the banner, which is lying on the ground up in front of you, and the cable came back under there. By the time you got there, then you feel a little bit of a jerk and then get it air, and then get the get the vampire airborne at the required speed. And the air traffic will, will give you a shout, give you a radio call to say banner's airborne. Okay. So then under <clears throat> radar control, they tell you what heading to go to to get into the danger, and they would monitor you while you were there and give you a warning that you had you know two minutes to turn left or right or what it happened to be to keep within a parallel to the coast, some five ten miles out to sea. Okay. And the other vamps. The flight of generally two would uh, launch after you, so they give you time to get into the into the area, <clears throat> and then they'd have to do a clear range procedure. So they would split one to the north, one to the south of the danger area, and at low level, just make sure there are no fishing boats or anything like that in it. So <laughs> yeah. radar, radar, harky radar control that once you're done, that rendezvous with the with the target tow and sit up about 1,500, 2,000 feet above and a little bit behind and then start their rolling by rolling in towards it, lowering the nose. And they do cine on the banner first and that would be analysed back at base with a weapons officer or flight commander to make sure you were safe, that your angle off, you were not getting too fine such you were shooting bullets past the target aeroplane. You had to be, I forget, something like 30-odd degrees minimum yep. for the... Uh, the flight path of the tow airplane. And I'm told that someone like Tony Glowack, he was a, quite a feature guy. He was towing a banner way back in the 50s, well before my time, and somebody shot some bullets and actually hit his airplane. And I think he was Polish and he exploded with rage about. I think they used to use TBF Avengers and other Mustangs or things like that back in the old days as the target tow. Yeah, was that right. fell on the vampire in my time? Okay. So you also mentioned um, the instrument flying, and did, did you fly under the hood in a two-seater, or how did that work? Yeah, you had a, a, a metal thing about uh, a foot or six to nine inches long and a bit wider, and you put it over the, they had a strap that pulled over the back of your helmet and stopped you like, like a horse with blinkers on. Right. So that you couldn't you couldn't see over the tops. You could only see the instruments, 
and the instructor or the safety pilot, if necessary, could force you onto limited panel, had a little um, a little guard that they could place over the top of the artificial horizon. So you were forced to use intimate, uh, limited panel stuff. They could see what the attitude, the wings attitude of the airplane on the artificial horizon, but you couldn't see it by looking at it. So they were guarded by corrugated, uh, like weatherboard on a house sort of idea. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you, you did limited panel, full panel, and you did uh, NDB letdowns and what they call the, the old CRDF, I think, in those days where the air traffic would tell you to transmit and get a bead on you, and then they would give you a, a heading to steer to the overhead, and then you'd start your descent on the heading required, and then at, at the required time uh, on air traffic, they'd tell you to start your base turn. And sometimes with those, and NDBs, they would go into a PAR letdown, a talk down stuff to touchdown stuff. So, and of course, you didn't have much gas. You had to be fairly careful all the time. You didn't run yourself out of fuel and you got on the ground pretty quickly. Right, right. I think, I think the minimum was 30 gallons. It carried 330, so you had 300 gallons used. The minimum was 300 gallons on the ground. And it was said that at one circle would take you 30 gallons. So you didn't bugger around. Oh, holy moly. I do remember reading about, uh, it's probably quite a bit before your time, one of the vampires actually ran out of gas and had to glide all the way back uh, to Ohakia and actually made it, which was amazing. Yeah. Did they glide very well, the vampires? Yeah, quite, quite pretty, pretty well, actually. Um, you could go quite some distance uh, with the thing and you practice flame out approaches and stuff like that in the, in the vampire. Well, just against the eventuality that you might run out of fuel or might get pretty low on gas. Right. Was there also uh, the possibility or, or at least the training for the possibility that you might have to put down in a paddock? Were, were they good on a rough strip sort of thing? Well, looking at some of the incidents and accidents over the over the eras, uh, the vampires and users seemed to toboggan along pretty well with its wheels up. It was, uh, nothing is ever safe, but it wasn't a real problem. Though There were problems sometimes if the gear, you'd land with the gear up, we'd just skid along and they'd just jack it up, put the gear down and not a hell of a lot of damage on the bottom of the airplane. Okay. Particularly if you're carrying drop tanks, it would just skid like those. Okay, yep, yep. Right. And what about night flying? Did you do much night flying on the Vampire? Not very much at all. Um, I think I went after some, I went to Skyhawks in October of 1970 and I started in January 69. And in that time, um, I had probably amounted uh, about a couple of hours of dual and about nine hours of night flying total and something like 18 months or a bit more. So that was a bit of a shortcoming on when I went to A4s. It was drinking by from a fire hose, literally getting in an A4, flying at night across country, when all we'd ever done was get airborne and do a few circuits and, and a CRDF or an ADF or a PAR at Ohakia, not a hell of a lot. So doing night weapons and all that stuff on A4s is a quantum jump. And I think they recognised, I did number two Skyhawk course, recognised the need to do more night flying to acquaint the junior pilots to fly in the blooming aeroplane, whatever it is at night time. So. Right, right. No, there wasn't a lot. Okay. Um, 
so if the if the more senior pilots were okay with that, had they been doing a lot more on the vampires than what you got to do? Or well, the senior guys, the flight commanders, have flown other airplane types. So right, they've course. flown cameras or something like that uh, in the main. Uh, not all instructors, but uh, or had more flying as instructors on Harvards and Devons and stuff. So we had really the minimum amount. It was probably one of the things you. You know, you, it, was, it was mainly to be feared of night flying. Why the hell are we doing all this stuff? <laughs> Birds and fools don't fly at night, so we'll do. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So once you actually got onto the operational side of the squadron, uh, how much difference was it? Was, was it less flying or? Uh, no, probably more flying uh, because there are more opportunities to fly during the day and you weren't relying on an instructor to supervise you. And of course, you worked up <clears throat> from a junior bog rat and you're a wingman. And once you've got enough experience, then with a more experienced instructor or one of the, the squadron pilots under supervision, you'd be a flight lead with okay. an experienced wingman on it. Once you could once they were happy that you could make sound decisions and fly the airplane safely and look after a wingman, then you're a pairs leader. And then you could be a pairs leader in a, in a four-ship. And after a period of time, and probably buying a lot of beer to the flight commander and others, you worked up to be a flight leader of a four-ship. So that was, that was the progression of the old learn to do the basics first. And as you got proficient, if you're any good, then you could be, become exercise some leader potential it's the old crawl walk run stuff right. learn to crawl before you walk before you run right so okay. the first the first uh, priority was to drop accurate weapons or fly the airplane accurately and re responsibly and reliably and all those good things and then to see what your leadership was because you then as the leader you had to do organize the flight on the ground get the flight briefing chalked up and it was chalk in those days before uh, the more modern whiteboard stuff. So to lead the, do the briefing, get the airplanes sorted or put the flight plan if it was a cross country navigation exercise, get all that stuff done and then lead the debrief after the end of the flight. So there was, it was all about the career development one and pilot development as you went through. Okay. Were you doing much uh, formation aerobatic type stuff on the squadron? Not very, nothing. very little for me at that time. The, uh, it, it, it's, it's an observation that's probably pretty true because if you're in the formation aerobatic team, you're the in crowd and the rest are in the out crowd. Right. So you only picked up the dregs of whatever planes were left after the, after the aerobatic team had done all their training. So at my stage with the Yellowhammers, I was just converting onto Skyhawks and they were already onto getting the yellow hammers team going which right. they did oh, i guess about march april may june-ish of 1969 and i was way too junior to go on the aerobatic team at that stage and then ross donaldson went to the states and john scrimshaw took over the squadron having was that after he'd been to vietnam i think my memory's not so good in there he in turn went to the States to pick up the Skyhawks um, and Stu Boys took over. So there was quite a changeover of squadron bosses and I guess they went into aerobatic teams at that stage. Yeah. 
they had been the people with the Trevor Blands and Roger Henstocks and Ross Ewings and all those. I mean, they did put together a team and flew at uh, the exercise Kia Claw uh, formation aerobatic team and a few practices in a way they could. They were pretty experienced guys and it didn't. It wasn't too difficult for them to fly, you know, general loops and barrel rolls and stuff like that. Right, right. Of course, having people like Trevor Bland on the squadron must have been quite inspiring too. I mean, he'd flown in the RAF and the Hunter team and stuff like that. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he'd come. He was there originally, and then he went and flew cameras, and he came back to the A4 in the more mid to later part of 1969, yeah. before he went with the ten guys to the states to pick up the Skyhawk. So. Certainly, he had a lot of experience, and others like uh, uh, Ross Ewing and John Denton and Roger Henstock and all those guys. They, a lot of them had done in formation heroes in Harvards at Wigram and stuff like that. So, you, as a junior boggy, you sort of looked on it with awe at them. Yeah. Un, unlike the old days, I some of the early history of 14 Squadron in Cyprus. I mean, they had two two aerobatic teams, A flight and B flight. And uh, pilot officers and flying officers were doing solo displays. So, not to say you couldn't do it, but I think wisely they selected the guys who had the most experience to do it. Yes. And it was only in later years that they'd have a smattering of some experienced fellas and some junior people to, to teach them, uh, give them confidence in flying in formations that they may later use in later years. You mentioned before about John Scrimshaw having been in Vietnam and, of course, several others on the squadron. Did their tour there too, Ross Ewing and um, loads of the guys off the squadron. Did, did you think at that stage that you might actually end up going over? To Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah, I think I was on the shortlist uh, when to go to Vietnam as a possible, possibly one of those to go there as a 40 year controller. Yeah. But of course, Vietnam at that stage, you know, and the, by the time I was in 84, was winding down. Some mm. still went, Peter Waller and those sort of people. But um, I guess that would be the, the need to have facts there in the later time was as they actually starting to withdraw from ground attack operations in, in Vietnam. It was a possibility. And we did a lot of stuff on vampires and then on Skyhawks and facts support where they used the Harvard as a, as a fact airplane with uh, FM radios to talk to the good the good guys on the ground and uh, VHF to talk to the fighters and we would uh, support the FAT course. They had a certain number of sorties and experienced guys like Ross Ewing and John Scrimshaw and those would teach the facts who were going to Vietnam, give them some experience on what it would be like uh, and benign training situation in New Zealand. But a smattering of the radio controls and procedure controls and target descriptions and dropping smoke and all that stuff so when they when they went to Vietnam, they had at least one step up on the ladder from what John and uh, what was as the early fact. So were those Harvards actually part of your squadron or was that a separate unit? Originally, the Harvards were on 42 squadron, I think, but then I think they Harvards 56 and 37. I think they're on 14 squadron. Oh, yes, they were. True. Yep. Uh, paint, they painted them silver, got rid of the day glow stuff off the tail end to make them a, bit, a little bit more warlike. But yes. they had a series of fat courses that were generally two to three a year, I think. And generally, any one of the Kiwis that were going up to be facts went through a fat course and we supported them 
on vents and then on, as I said, on the skyhooks. Right, okay. Uh, that period where you're about to leave vampires and move on to the skyhawk, were you excited about that? And, and was it like a, a huge step up? Oh, it was. I was pretty excited to fly a new airplane. <coughs> and it was a quantum leap up. And we'd been, as 14 Squadron took the you know, Canberra's up to Singapore for exercise for Sadhu Padu in the earlier months of 1970, which was the final uh, big exercise uh, multi-nation before the Brits pulled out east of Suez. And I went up there as an operations officer, non-flying, because I was only vampire follower. Yeah. We did fly a bit um, when we got back from there. 75 Scotland uh, vampires uh, became 75 Scotland Skyhawks and the Canberras were phased out of service and we went through a transition period at SSU, Strike Support Unit, and then 14 Squadron picked up the vampires. Right. Um, I carried on until those until I think about end of October. October, September, I think, September, October of 1970, when I did start on number two Skyhawk course. And the three other guys that are on the course with me, they're all flown Canberras. So I was uh, uh, vampires only. So lacking in experience compared to them, certainly. Yeah. But I, one of the vivid memories that I have is compared to the vampire for the takeoff role, you had to be careful. You'd never slam the throttle open. It would, uh, the thing would the fuel control unit wasn't good enough to control the slam and so you had to feed the power on as the aircraft speed increased with the a4 by comparison you slam the throttle forward and it just went like a cut cap and i was still doing my takeoff checks i think as the airplane was airborne and it was downwind going the opposite direction i was that far behind the airplane it was a quantum leap and, and and performance and capability and uh, the whole thing was pretty overawing. Wow. Okay. Of course, we didn't have a simulator or anything like that. So it was a case of the first time the takeoff. I think after that, what they did was they, what they called concrete one. So you're able to get in the airplane full of kit strap and start up taxi to the end of the runway and taxi back. And by then your brain was an overload. You'd had enough for the day. So. Right. The, the learning curve was pretty steep. So after doing something as simple as getting in there, the pre-flight get-in startup procedure, because there's, like I say, no simulator, and then taxi the thing out and all the radio calls and getting back in, you're now ready to have a big cup of tea and sit down and collapse into a chair. <laughs> so you built on knowledge pretty quickly, and it was certainly great to fly, even... The simple stuff like the cockpit layout was neat and tidy and designed like it should have been rather than, as I said before, the British just had spare switches and bloody dials and instruments and flung them in the airplane in a pretty random manner. Yeah. Was it a more comfortable cockpit? It was a little bit bigger, I guess, was it? Uh, I don't remember it was anything bigger, especially the single seater, the, the A4K. Yeah. It was big enough, but you could still bang your head in turbulence on the side of the canopy. Oh, right. Okay. And the T bird was a bit, the TA4 was bigger uh, all round, like longer, but the cockpit was a little wider than the single seater. Yeah. You mentioned that you didn't have a simulator, and I guess there was no simulator for the uh, vampire either. Um, 
but were were you guys also using a link trainer or something like that just no to keep up okay so that had been phased out no so you what you did in the airplane uh beforehand was sit in it with ground power hooked up so you could make all the instruments work yeah and then the cockpit familiarization getting used to what the where the things were I mean, they all sound pretty complicated. But going to mum's kitchen at any time, that looks pretty confusing as well. But she knows where things are. Yes. Whereas if, if you go hunting, same in a cockpit, the, the, the things are laid out in logical sort of pattern. If you want the automatic flight, the autopilot, or you want radios, they're all sort of sitting in a, a separate place. And just like mum knows where to go in the kitchen to get the sugar or get a pot, you know, which covered where they are. Same with the cockpit stuff. It's, pretty simple and basic stuff. Yeah. Made a hell of a lot simpler with a procedure trainer that they had on the van, the Phantom and then the simulator that I had on those. Yeah. Make, certainly makes the transition much easier. And if you like any sort of fighter pilot with a brain the size of a pea, you want to use the whole pea to think about the flight coming up, not worrying about little things that are trivial that you could have picked up earlier by some ground-based procedure trainer or simulator. Um, so one, you're on the Skyhawk now, and I guess you had to learn about all their weapon systems. Um, was it much different from the, from the weapon systems on the, uh, Vampire? Yeah, quite a lot. The guns were, guns are guns. You turn the switch on and pull the trigger. Rockets, the same sort of thing. Uh, bombs. Now we had, we didn't have them initially, but we soon did. We had the slick bomb, the uh, 500 pound or 1,000 pounder, and we used a 25 pound uh, practice bomb. I suppose they had similar ballistics for again for 45, 30, 20 degree dive bomb stuff, yeah. and then use the 105, Mark 105 or BDU, well, I forget the name of BDU 33 was the slick bomb. This, the, the beer can bomb was to simulate the, the flight characteristics of a 500 pounder with a snake eye fin. That, like an umbrella that opens up at the back of it to slow down, which you could drop in a shallow angle dive or level pass coming high speed. And of course, you want to get separation between the airplane and the bomb because when the bomb goes off, you don't want to be any, anywhere near it or blow your tail off or blow you up. So, so, and then of course, you had the sidewinder. Initially, we could only look at the black and white movie in a, in a security cleared base cinema sort of area. Uh, we saw one, I saw one once, but you didn't carry them. It was only in later years you could have the captive version of it so you could get the growl of the Sidewinder Seeker head going. Yeah. And then beyond my time, they got into the Maverick and stuff like that, which are much more capable weapons than, than were used in my time from 90s. Well, I was there in 1970 to 73 when I went to Singapore. And then I went back to A4s and CO75 and what? Oh, no, 1984, end of 83, 84, 85 yeah. uh, on the Skyhawks, and then I was OC Strike, 86, 87. So essentially, there wasn't much, a hell of a lot of change. And it's one of the, not a criticism, but an observation I made that having been away from the Skyhawks for about 10 years, when I went back, I was going like into a time war. Nothing much had changed, and yet there'd been a lot of big change in tactics. Yeah, there's a, been a very big change. So transitioning to the A4, first it was it was bigger and it was faster than the Vampire yeah. and could carry a lot more weapons. 
uh, quite a quite a load and or a hell of a lot of gas. So as an aeroplane, it was excellent in terms um, when they announced they're going to buy it, we all had visions of buying phantoms or those sorts of things. And then they said the Skyhawk. So we all raced for the dumpy book of aeroplanes, find what's a Skyhawk. <laughs> and found that in practice over years, having flown both the Phantom and the Skyhawk, the Skyhawk was ideal for what we needed and wanted. Yeah, so yeah, the Skyhawk, I think, was a good buy. It had long legs for, for transit here to Australia and to Singapore and the Philippines, stuff like that. It was one engine, one pilot. Uh, and so the compared to the Phantom, which was much more complex, two engines, two people, I think we, we had the right deal. And even in later years when it was refitted, uh, the Kahu update, the aeroplane was still an A4, but it had excellent capability. So it was a good aeroplane to fly. But turning back to the Skyhawk, you did a lot more night close formation, uh, a lot more taxing and more anti-shipping sort of strike, which is a role we had out, way out over the sea working with the P3s yeah. for a VECTAC sort of procedure. So it was a very capable aeroplane. And we've initially the teething problems were not enough spares, so we're not very many aeroplanes for 18 pilots. So, so we had on the squadron at the time, but they generally got better over the period and I think we held our head up very high with the A4 and exercise in Australia and Indonesia and Singapore and Philippines and all Malaysia, all the places we went with the thing. So it was pretty good, good aeroplane to fly. Yeah, definitely. So um, you mentioned you went to Singapore. What was the, was that a, an exchange or? Yeah, it was a sort of an odd one. We'd had an RNZF Canberra navigator out there working with the RAF and, and operations. And when he was due to be replaced, the then chief of air staff, who was Air Vice Marshal Doug St. George, he asked the postings people, so the story goes, right, we need a Skyhawk pilot to go up to Singapore. And they said, we don't have any. He said, bring me the list of Skyhawk pilots. And he looked down there, Jim Barkley, he said, I played inter-service golf with him, he's going. He said, no, sir, he can't. he's already been told he's going to flying instructor's course. No, he's going to Singapore next. <laughs> so that's, uh, I went to Singapore and I worked uh, just as the British had pulled out at the end of 73 and running the operations room on the base, uh, the Singapore Armed Forces were taking it over. And so I worked as the flight commander there with a guy, Templeman Rook, who is a RAF, XREF maritime guy and uh, OC flying Jerry Farwell, a wing commander who was a lieutenant colonel on loan. And we had to shift the operations, remodel it, and get training schemes up so that Singaporean people could run it instead of the Brits. And once they got all that, we got it all up, all the works done and all the communications, got it all running properly because we had Mirages on base and we had the 41 squadron on base with Bristol freighters and and we had the hunters and from two squadrons of SAF. Then uh, after about nine months or so, they SAF said, oh, we're going to take over the flight commander position so you can go on a roster and work on a roster basis for the rest of the time. I said, no, thanks. So I saw, I went to see Aaron's of Singapore, Bernie O'Connor, just out the door and across the road. And he said, oh, you can be Edge Aaron's of Singapore. So that's the position I took up until John Scrimshaw took over from Bernie O'Connor. Okay. And it became 41 Squadron instead of Irons of Singapore. 
So I was edge of 41 squadron for a period until I came home at the end of 75. So the time was about half spent with the Singapore Armed Forces and the other half with Kiwis at Tenga. Okay. Did you get any flying in then? What? Yeah, I did. I flew in a Phantom, uh, RAF one from the RAE. So that was interesting. I flew a flight in a Vulcan. I flew quite a few in um, the Hunter, Hawker Hunter. Oh, yeah. A few with 41 Squadron and Bristol Freighters and a few more in Iroquois with like Trevor Butler and Russell Cross and all those taught me how to fly the of sorts or polar Iroquois. Yep. Uh, so I picked up a few flights here and there and they had a few, a few away trips and stuff like that with them, which was pretty good up to QB Point with the Bristol Freighter and down to Indonesia and up to Butterworth. So I got around a little bit. And, and by that stage, we'd had uh, a little girl starting school up in Singapore and then came back with a brand new BMW 520. So I did pretty well. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sounds like a good posting. Yeah. And so you came back to, where, where did you come back to after? Some... I went to Wigram and I did a quick two-flight refresher on the Harvard uh, that I'd last flown in 1968, and this is now 76. Wow. And then I did the flying instructor's course at Wigram on the Harvard and then instructed for one course or so or you know, on the Harvard. And then the air trainer came along. So we oh, yeah. the Harvard was phased out in 77 and and the air trainer took its place. We also did fiddled around a bit in the air tour, air training corps and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and then after some time at PTS, I went to Central Flying School as an instructor for a year. Uh, and that included on the Devon and stuff, a few Devon flights here and there with Nats and flying around with those things. And then became OCCFS in early 79 until I was posted to the States in May of, 79 to Air Force Phantom at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida, just below Miami. Okay. I was going to say, as OCCFS, you would have been um, uh, the boss of the Red Checkers, but of course, there wasn't any Red Checkers at that time, was there? Because the... No, the air trainer was just coming to service and there was little known about it, and there were not enough of them at that period to, to support pilot training squadron as well as CF, CFS. I guess if we'd pushed hard, we could have done something, but yeah. it seemed to me uh, didn't have a lot of power. Although Frank Sharp and those that followed later, they started up the Red Checkers team and the air trainer and did a damn good show. Yeah. They were playing with a very minimal amount of power. But I'd been through the early 70s part of it, the mid-70s, where the fuel shortage, even the later 70s, I remember going to the States and there were alternate days to get fuel for your car and stuff like that. So. <laughs> they they discouraged the aerobatic flying, and I later found the same when I co seventy five. We were so busy doing a lot of preparing for exercise like Cape Thunder in the Philippines. There was no time to pull out four, five, six aeroplanes uh, from the limited number we had to get an aerobatic team going. Although of course that changed with the Air Force fiftieth, where again Frank Sharp that an exceptionally good team, followed by John Bates, uh, the Kiwi Red. Yep. And they were very polished, but the horses for courses, my time, we had different priorities of exercise, exercise triad and stuff like that. So. Now, um, 
I want to get on to, you, you mentioned going to Homestead in the States and that's when you had an exchange tour on Phantoms. Can you tell me about the, the Homestead tour? Well, it got off to a little bit of an unusual if rocky start. I arrived there and we set up in the distinguished visitors quarters, so waiting for a house. And uh, they said, well, here's the dash one uh, for the phantom familiar, I get up to speed with that. And there's a part task trainer, so you go through your hydraulics and electrics and all those sort of systems and uh, with multi-choice questions. And then there's uh, five simulator rides of which I did about of an hour and a half each. And I did about four of those for an hour. And then it's right, here's the first flight. So I thought this is pretty ad hoc sort of a conversion. I've never flown the airplane before. And after some sorties, some flights, we got uh, instead of seven transition flights, I think we had about five. And I was struggling um, getting used to this beast of an airplane. Um, and then we got straight into BFM, basic fighter maneuver stuff. And the instructor said in the back, said, put the pinky to guns. And I said, what? Is it too late? And I said, what's the pinky? The pinky finger on the outside of your left hand and on the outside of the throttle of the on the, the the left hand throttle there was a little switch called a pinky switch because you use your pinky finger and he told me about this and i and then i put down my debriefing thing and i said look i'm drinking from a virus i don't know what you're talking about he said kiwi i didn't think you're doing very well for a guy that's got all these flying hours in the phantom and i said i've never flown them he said what and i said i've never flown the phantom <laughs> And he said, yes, you have. And he stalked across the filing cabinet and pulled it out. And the finally said, look, it's 750 hours A4. And I said, that's right, A4. Not F4, it's an A4. What's an A4? He said, a Skyhawk. He said, you mean a Navy scooter? And I said, call it whatever you want to. It's a Skyhawk. He said, you mean you've never flown an F4? And I said, that's what I've been trying to tell you. And he said, oh, my God. So they had assumed I was in a Phantom qualified pilot. And they wow. were just doing a famil. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that sort of explained why I was behind the bloody eight period of time. Anyway, I went back to the DV quarters and the, the OC flying equivalent, the wing commander came along and he just said, Kiwi, we've got egg all over our face. He said, How can we begin to apologize? And I said, Well, never mind that. What's next? Yeah. So they had what they called a T course for people who'd flown the airport before. And this is a refresher or those uh, uh, 100 series airplane that was similar to the F4. Then they had a B course, which was a longer one for those who had come from another role, unusually, but generally those who come through flight training and done the T-38, we're now going on to the operational tour. So I said, put me on the B course, which was longer. It would give me time to get a driver's license, get my house, my family into a house, get the kids to school, all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. So I did I did that B course or not all of it. They picked out the bits they thought that I needed. Um, and then rather than do the whole lot of it, of a particular the BFM, ACM, ACT, air to ground, air to air stuff, uh, had enough for a smattering. Then they said, right now you have to do an I course, an instructor's course. So there I learned had to learn their fly their airplane from the back seat uh, with a trainee pilot in the front. Uh, or from the front seat with a trainee wizzo weapon systems operator in the back seat. Yeah. And when I was in the back, I had to be like a wizzo. So although I'd never done so that used the air-to-air -air radar, 
we'll use the nuke bombing stuff and all that stuff in the backs. They had to learn that, having never used it operationally like the rest of the guys on the I course until uh, I completed that part of the course. And that I'd started on the E model and then did the I course on the D model, which was the older version of it. Of the fan and then went back to the E to instruct and then the wing was re-equipping with uh, Ds and 35 of the uh, E models were given to President Sadat in Egypt as part of the Camp David Peace Accord. So the whole wing of something like 120 F4s either were given to operational squadrons and we got their manky old buddy Ds. Oh, yeah. So I stayed on the 309 for a period and then went to the 308 because the 309 was going to be operational. And it had some brown bars, you know, lieutenants just posted in to operations fight. And of course, the Kiwi couldn't be operational because they'd have to, they have no way of employing me in a real time wartime situation. So I went to one of the other squadrons and flew the D model there. And stayed there until what end of well, end of January 1982 when I came home to New Zealand for 14 squadron. Okay, so well, once you're on that squadron, what were you doing? What what was your main uh, role and the daily sort of work that you were doing? I was a flying instructor. Yep. Okay. So so you'd take them the the, the student as it's called from. The transition stuff, or firstly through the simulator, you have to teach them on the simulator what you're trying to do, even the start, taxi, takeoff sort of stuff. Through the transition, which would get them the first pilot day qualified, so they'd be instrument rated and they could fly their airplane from A to B or if need be. And then you got into the operational stuff. And they started uh, the BFM phase first, the basic fighter maneuvers, learning to fly their airplane in three dimensions, and then got into AC air combat training and dissimilar air combat training. And then you got into the air to ground stuff, dropping bombs, uh, firing the guns, and then into the nuke delivery stuff, with 540 knots, 600 on knots, low level, and the pull up stuff and toss the bomb five miles to the target as you tried to get out of the place before the bomb went off and melted the honeycomb on the tail of the airplane, and, wow. which is probably not a good ending for you. No. So, and that was all in phases and each, it, it exposed me to a, a big Air Force working on a, a pretty procedurally based system. They figured out how many students on each course and how many sorties each course had to do and they allowed a, a factor for non-effective stuff because of weather or broken equipment in the airplane or something like that. So they had a, a wing, what they called a wing sortie goal in order to reach the graduation. And each of the four squadrons had their own, normally one or two courses of students going through and they had a graduation day and they worked your butt off to get it. Each squadron had a goal and it was like at golf, you were plus one or minus 10 or something like that. And then as the, you drove onto the base, there was the big, big signboard that changed every day of the, the four squadrons, whether they're plus or minus on uh, to their planned sortie goal and the wing goal, it was a combination of all four squadrons. And if the wing achieved its target, its goal, uh, before the end of the month, and the first day of the following month was a stand down day for everyone. So everyone was working as a team right across the base because they all wanted the day off. So, right. And they had real accountability. So that at 
squadron commanders stand the the base commander the OC flying here they call stand up for the commander so you, you went a rep from each squadron plus the the uh, mechanical people the engineers the supply guys all that they all attended so from the flying squadrons okay kiwi what you've got so you put down the oh the ohp on the screen and it'd say how many sort of you had set out to fly that day and uh, where there are any deficiencies why didn't you fly that one and of course they tried to blame each other as to take the hit yeah so this particular airplane didn't fly why didn't it fly because something was broken so engineer was now clear because he didn't have a replacement bit so they turned straight away to the head supply guy well when's the when's the bit going to be available and the guy didn't know he said, get your butt out of here and don't come back you get answers <laughs> he, he left the room came back said the part will arrive from Heller air force base into Miami tomorrow at six o'clock and he said and and the guy looked at him that's this full colonel looked at the other four colonels he, he said don't go and tell me what time it'll be back on base so off he went again, came back and said, it'll be back at base at eight o'clock in the morning. Then he turned straight to the maintenance guy and said, how will it take the fitter? And will it make the next sortie? So it was down to Nat's arsing stuff to make sure that there was accountability right through the system. And it, and it worked because these guys are working to type timelines to get courses graduated because the pipeline kept feeding like a sausage machine, the next guy that come on through. So you worked hard in all the different phases of air-to-air -air refueling, by day and by night and air to ground, air to air. So it's a full on time. And a sortie would generally take about five hours from the time you started the briefing, generally no more than an hour of briefing. And then an hour from walking from the building across the street to get kitted out in your flying clothing and taken by a panel van out to the line of airplanes. You had to find them first. And then you had a start time, taxi time. And then if you were not airborne, I think you get airborne two minutes early or five or ten minutes late and beyond that then you had to have a reason for the wing commander is why you know you're not on time so the very few ops deletes because you always had a spare pilot someone had a cold and couldn't fly you'd had someone else another sortie could fill its place so that big armor is often between the maintenance delete or supply delete and i took a lot of that back with me the good bits, the good features of it back to Ahaki when I went back in 1982 to be so 14 Squadron Strike Masters, and they were scattered across New Zealand, it seemed, and we flogged the hell out of the crew that we had. And there was no accountability apart from the squadron commander. So I started asking some questions, got a better system organized there, which I'd learned from the big system in your states. Yeah. yeah. So that would have been a real. Uh, a real boost for the squadron to become a lot more efficient i guess well i thought so uh people worry about all kinds of things but at the end of the day back in new zealand we had a flying out target to meet and it really wasn't related to sorties that you generated was which was more important than flying hours right. like i said i had five flights in a vampire for 15 minutes but i had five different attacks using the gun so it was more about flying hours and sorties for the students on 14 squadron and for the op flight and if the, if there were not enough airplanes the pressure was to get the students graduated on the strike master on time in which case the op flight guys got some or very little flying and that just wasn't good enough we had to have more accountability as to where the strike masters were at woodburn or in the hangar at ahakia or the maintenance hangar and if they had a target date well then the damn will have to meet them 
uh, was due to events outside their control. So, but the phantom was good stuff and i had a number of i had exercise maple flag up in canada for two weeks and that was pretty pretty interesting stuff it's like a red flag but it's done in canada okay. or, and we had different phases at the at deployments we as instructors they wanted to make sure that they didn't have moth around the light syndrome of operating out of only homestead so you could bid for an airplane to go cross country you could fly out on a Friday afternoon, have to be back by Sunday afternoon and go anywhere you like that would take an Air Force in the state. Wow. So I went way over one stage to Point McGoo to see Larry Fitzenmeyer, who had been the US Navy exchange guy, a pilot at Ohaki on Skyhawks when I was first there. Right. So, and, you know, to Reno and to all Wright-Patterson and to all kinds of different places. Again, you get there several hops in a day you two to three hops in a day and get back pick up some uh, shrimp to eglin air force base on the way back and um, be back sunday afternoon <laughs> isn't it amazing that you could just sign out a fighter jet and go for a, <laughs> go for a ticky tour <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty cool so it must have been quite a not, not so much a culture shock, but coming back to New Zealand where everything's a little bit slower and not so pressured, I guess it must have been a bit of an adjustment coming home. Yeah, it was good for the kids and the family because the girls started, the eldest and started school at Palmerston Girls High and finished all the way through. Whereas in the previous times, I mean, we, we in my service group, 36 years, had 23 houses and the kids you know they i guess they suffer a bit losing friends and the continuity of training but aside from that yeah it was i used to say one small step from mankind going from a phantom to a strike master but it was a different responsibility because you had the two flights of running the uh, the, the students in advanced stage of pilot training and with a, a number of instructors who'd never flown fighter type airplanes before they came from different roles so they're not attuned to the way the knuckleheads flew and why they did things. Yeah. And then you had the op flight, which had much more interest to me. And I was able to institute changes to the to the structure, the need for structured approach to air-to-air -air training. So having done a 15 months at 14 squad, I then did a staff college and I, I did my paper on, on just that. I could see that there was a need to have a structured approach to teaching air combat training. Otherwise, you're just monkey see monkey do and some people were never very good at it and didn't understand what the hell they were trying to do with the airplane right. and a lot of that is a direct result of what i learned from the states and brought back and implemented we also did a lot of uh, pop-up deliveries because the old vietnam wheel they were still using here at there at ohakia and of course shoulder launch missiles would come and you couldn't do that anymore even in vietnam you had to run and pop up acquire the target and deliver your weapons and hope you, you didn't get a missile up your bum so we had we changed a lot of that and unfortunately uh, we we're fairly infants in the arms that at that stage on on measuring fatigue in airplanes and so we had a massive rise in the fatigue in the wings of the strike mass and had to replace six six sets of them or something like that later downstream yeah when des ashton who was in wellington monitoring fatigue he said i oh, you noted 1982 onwards for a couple of years there was a huge spike in the fatigue count in the strike master. So I had to admit in later years, it was me. <laughs> we, 
we're doing a lot more bloody combat stuff. And also because there was not good fleet management. The airplanes were broken in various parts of hangars getting picked. And so we flew the arse off the ones that we had. Right. And uh, there was no, it was using the airplane for anything all the time. There was no management of fatigue across the fleet, which you could do fairly easy, which is what we did and designed into the use of the Airmaki to make sure that the fatigue count was monitored very closely and you didn't pull the wings off one aeroplane while the other ones sat idle in the hangar not being flown for months. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you were CO of 14, did you actually do much flying and in, in, in any instructing or were you more flying the desk? No, I had flown the Strike Master just before I went to the States. I did an A2 upgrade on Al King at Ohaki. He was flight commander training flight at 14. So I really had only done enough to get instrument rated and fly the airplane around the circuit. So I had to sort of semi-complete a conversion course ad hoc, which I didn't think was very good. And the same on the Skyhawk when I went there. Yeah. I hadn't flown the Skyhawk for something like you know, 10, 11 years. And it was just an ad hoc conversion. And I think much to Frank Sharp's dismay when he came to take over for me as uh, CO75, I insisted that what he did was a full, a proper reefer mill conversion course. We were not needing to be worried about running a squadron at the same time you're trying to get up to speed on the airplane because, you know, if you haven't flown it for a while, you don't want to make it fool yourself or you don't want to kill yourself because you didn't do things properly. Yeah. So what I did do was a, an ad hoc conversion on the strike mass, which I never felt comfortable with, even though it's a much simple airplane and a phantom, you can still kill yourself by doing stupid and dumb things out of ignorance. Yeah. Uh, and I, I did some, but not much on the training flight instructing. I preferred to leave that to the capable people there, but I did nearly all of the final handling tests of the pilots before graduation. Yeah. Had to fly with the boss. And I busied myself most of the time by getting in with the op flight, who are the guys who had finished their wings course and were going through a year to 18 months-ish before they went on the Skyhawk. So using the same weapon, the same aeroplane, but now learning to use it tactically with guns, rockets, bombs, and air-to-air -air combat and stuff like that. So I found much more satisfaction in doing that. And at one stage, we didn't have an op flight commander, and I had to do the conversion course of I think four guys all by myself, which was a big load. So we really needed to spread the load and make sure that they had time to run, the, to look after the issues of the squad and all the maintenance flight and the, the manpower type issues and stuff like that, as well as flying the jet myself. But it was uh, probably something conceited pride. I wanted to do well at weapons because I had been places. Sometimes the boss would say, do as I say, not as I do. And they'd hit the ground with a bomb, but no close to the target. So I wanted to make sure I was, that you know, I could drop the, if not the best, then amongst the best of guns, rockets, bombs and stuff like that, both on the Strike Master and the Skyhawk. Okay. So, so you went you went back to seventy five squadron after fourteen, is that correct? As a CO. Yeah, I went and did the six month staff college at the end of eighty three and right. up in Auckland, <clears throat> and then I was promoted to wing commander. Went to seventy five squadron at the end of eighty three and stayed to the end of eighty five. Okay. And that was 
another ad hoc conversion, which didn't leave me well placed. I mean, I got there, but I think I could have been much better if I could just concentrate and known about the systems in the airplane and how to get up to speed properly rather than just sort of try and pick it up at home at night with other things to do. Yeah. But early in that year, we had um, deployed to Singapore and then we went on to Cote Thunder in the Philippines. So we had a Vanguard exercise in Singapore and on to the, on to the two weeks that we're at uh, Cope Thunder. And the end of the first week was the, when the Labour government under David Longy decided on its anti-nuclear stance. So whereas we were very popular the first week and I had invitations to all kinds of things as the squadron boss, uh, by the second week, uh, I was almost all but persona non gratia. They didn't kick us out of the exercise. We still carried on there, but socially it was not good to be associating with a Kiwi who didn't like American and its nukes anymore. And we came back from that, and within, I think, a couple of weeks, we had exercise triad, which was well advanced at that stage and probably too late to cancel because the F-16s were at Ahakia, F-15s at Fenerbahce and Aussie, F-111s and Mirages and stuff. So it was a full-on exercise. So it was a pretty busy period in the first six or eight months I was on the squadron. Very enjoyable. What... Um... What goes into planning one of those big exercises like Triad? I mean, there, there must have been a hell of a lot of work for you guys that were commanders of the squadrons. Yeah, the planning that goes in from operations group headquarters, Ching Fuller was heavily involved in, tactically. And so they, there was a limited number of uh, army at Wairu and other places. So there were 40 air controlled strikes, there were anti shipping stuff, yeah. exercise with the P3s against the Navy and other boats. There was some air to air stuff. Uh, through through various phases and of course with American forces I think they maybe they'd done some air refuel they did, certainly did air refueling to get to New Zealand whether they did any on exercise I'm not sure it wasn't as complex as the maple flag where they had uh, EW jamming and stuff like that right. that I'd done in on the Phantom and um, and they didn't have uh, designated ranges where you could drop uh, big bombs and stuff like we did it in, in the Philippines. But nevertheless, it was a pretty big one for New Zealand. And sadly, the last one we ran because uh, ANZUS, anti ANZUS stuff happened straight after around that time and afterwards. So, right, right. So that was 1984, wasn't it? 84, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I guess, well, with the ANZUS thing that came in, did that stop all the overseas exercises, like up to Singapore and that as well, or, or did that kind of thing carry on? I think it's Singapore carried on because that was uh, Five Nations stuff, FPVA, Five Power Defence Arrangement. Yep. That wasn't affected by ANZUS, which was Australia, New Zealand, and United States. Right. And effectively, we become non-playing partners in the ANZUS pact as it was. So Australia carried on with America, but we never did thereafter. Yeah. And all the practical things like the exchange postings on P3 Orion, C-130 these F4 Phantoms, they were allowed to finish their period, in my case, it was two years plus training time. So they were allowed to finish out the two to three years, both in New Zealand and the exchange people we had here and the Kiwis in the, in the States, but they weren't replaced. And that was pretty sad, really. Um, it was not until 
Timor and things like that that we started when I was then in the embassy in Washington trying to get intelligence stuff organized. So, so our people in Timor had this access to the same information that the Aussies and the Americans and the other forces that were part of Timor could have. So it was a long period. Essentially, we're still allies, but we were, our, our file was at the bottom of the pile, and if America got to us, they could. So. Right. I guess at that period too, um, 1984, 85, 86, you were in that stage of planning the upgrade for the Skyhawks, the Kahu upgrade. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I was at Ohaki as OC Strike Wing, 86, 87, and so the first of the airplanes starting, the work was continuing on them. Was a small team and, and Stu White led it from uh, Wellington with Leah Sieglers and negotiating what to put it and how to do it and how to get safe air, organise it, uh, Woodburn to do the upgrade stuff, replace the Skyhawk wings, all that sort of stuff that went into stuff that we could afford to do and how we were going to set about doing it, how to fit the F-16 radar into the confined nose of the Skyhawk and how to get all the clever stuff that was inside it. In the cockpit upgrading things. So, although it was the same aeroplane, looked the same, it had a in really enhanced capability, which made it very capable. Yeah. And when I went to the States for, with Jared Isaacman's uh, team and did a little speech to sort of to in fact hand over the Skyhawks and the pilots that had flown them, they were really, really impressed by the capability of the A4 with its next to F-16 capability inside the cockpit. Very impressive. And the Mackie as well. That was a great lead into what the cockpit layout of the, of the F-16 would or could have been if, if we got them. It's uh, it's interesting that those Skyhawks are still quite active with uh, um, Draken. And, yeah. you know, that's that's over 30 years since the, the upgrade. Um, you know, and they'd be what they'd be coming up to. They'd be about fifty-two years old now. Most of those aircraft, some of them are older because they were ex-Australian ones. So, um, an amazing aircraft, really. Yeah, pretty rugged little airplane for sure. And you replace the wings on them and give it zero life again, and away it went. Yeah. Some enhanced cockpit stuff. Cooling the systems was always a problem. There, getting enough fan stuff to get the especially on the ground, there were limits on that, but essentially it was a very capable aeroplane. Yeah. So I took, uh, when I was then sent in 98 to Singapore, to embassy in Washington, CAS at the time, Kerry Adamson said he wanted me to go up and help unlock the F-16 deal. So I, we did with the Ministry of Defence and other people, and we got the F-16s and I had the pleasure of signing co-signing the uh, agreement to, to take the F-28 F F-16s out of the States and bring back to New Zealand. And then later when Helen Clark's government came along, she cancelled the F-16s and got rid of what she called the clapped out Skyhawks. And if you don't have Skyhawks, you don't need the Mackie 339. So in a wish of a swish of a hand, they're all gone as quick as that. Yeah, absolutely crying shame. But that, that F-16 deal was the deal of the century, wasn't it? It really was. Yeah, I remember the early days of negotiating with Robin Johansson and others, but um, the Americans 
the airplanes had been bought by Pakistan and then because of problems politically, uh, they'd been put into the desert. So the Prime Minister of Pakistan said to President Clinton, can I have my money back or the airplanes? And Clinton said, well, that's not un unreasonable. He turned to the Air Force and said, get rid of these things. So I'm now based in the embassy and with uh, supporting the team that was negotiating. And they said, well, Kiwis, these airplanes will be 30 to $35 million each and we'll give them to for a knockdown deal. I pick a number, say 25 million. I remember piping up and saying, yeah, but they're not new. Yes, they are. The lowest has got eight hours and the highest have got 13 hours. They're new. And I said, but if you go to the store and you see a fridge or a motomar that's been sitting on the on the floor for 10 years, you know, they're not new, they've only deteriorated. So anyway, along those lines, we negotiated and we got down, I think about something like about seven and a half million each. Wow. And then we said, oh, by the way, we don't want to buy them. They said, what? They said, we only want to lease them like the land lease system in World War II. And they said, we'll have to study that. And off they went, came back and said, my God, you're right. He said, well, if we lease them, we can take it out of the operating side of the budget because we've got no capital to buy them. So it figured out that they would depreciate at something like, I don't know, 20% or something like that a year from seven and a half million. So not many years, they'd be worth not a lot and they will write them off. So we could have picked them up for some. And we wanted a 10 year deal out of it. And the best they would do is a five turn five. I mean, at least for five years, they'd have to go back to Congress and the States to be approved, but they didn't anticipate any problems. And I think what the plan was to reduce six of them to spares and bring 22 back. Although Quigley had a different view of that afterwards. Uh, but anyway, it's all by the by because it was all cancelled and I got a letter that I had to sign and send to the US Air Force. His defence attaché and the New Zealand Embassy and so my government no longer wishes to buy them. Thank you very much. Bye. Wow, that must have been very hard. Yeah, it was, and I, I'm told that the recruiting in the RNZF, which had peaked at a, was a pretty steep rise on the graph, just fell over the top of the cliff, as the young people were very keen to come and work on new aeroplanes. Um, and then, of course, when they were cancelled, there was no interest in carrying on with the damn things beyond the, beyond the A4 period. And, of course, they laid off hundreds of uh, ground staff and pilots, uh as a result of the strike wing going as well, which was a year or so later. Yeah, that's right. And lost all that capability and yeah. train, training and experience. And yeah, I, don't think, I honestly don't think the Air Force has completely recovered from that. Um, well, it's got a different role and I admire the way that they professionalism of the young people these days, they get out flying the airplanes that they do and flying them very well and yeah. achieving the high results that we have achieved for a long, long time in the RNZF with very skilled people who get highly motivated and highly skilled and produce good results. At the same time, without, I think Jim Bolger as ambassador in the embassy when I was there, he said, this will be the first time in 80 years that we're having got an airplane that's dedicated to delivering weapons, ordnance from the air. I mean, sure you can fire something from a P3 or roll a bomb out of the back of a herd, but uh, it's not a bomber fighter type airplane that you're, you're talking about. Yeah. And that, that's true. Yeah, such but a shame. It's, it's not over to the military to decide what it has. It's over to the, our political masters and leaders who decide on behalf of the people of New Zealand what we want. So we just do what we're told and do it, do it well. Yeah. 
so in your um, role, did you have input into the selection of the uh, Maki as well when that was coming in? Yes, uh, I en ended up as the project manager. Ken Gafer had, uh, as DCS had started it, or Sasso he was then, and I took over that, that position. Yeah. And uh, he led the evaluation team with Steve Moore and Trees Forrest and a few of those that traveled around the, the world looking at aeroplanes. Um, and then when it was decided the Mackie was the one I took over, I think it's about 1990 or 91, 1990, I think. Um, and we went to Malaysia and looked at the Malaysian 3-3 uh, 339s. And then we flew on to Germany and looked at the BDO, the head-up display sort of unit, and then down into Italy to uh, Lecce in the boot way down the bottom of, of Italy and at the training squadron down there. And uh, they showed us the airplanes in use for the day. And then we flew out to Practical Demare, which is their weapons testing place on the coast out from Rome for another day as they showed us what they could do in weapons, integration of weapons onto the airplane in the Italian Air Force. And then we went to Venegono up to the north of Italy, up near the lakes um, to the Mackie factory. And we sat down and negotiated as to, from their recommended spares list, um, what the, the, the actual list of what we thought we'd need based on what we learned from the Malaysians um, and the Italians of a spares package. So once we got that information rounded out as to things like canopy, canopies and engines and undercarriage and all that, the spares and how the things would be done, we then went back to Wellington and sat down and butted heads with the Amaki people to negotiate a contract, which was subsequently done. And the Amaki was announced as the preferred airplane and we were gonna buy however many we did yeah. I, I know that the Mackie had issues with its engines in the early period, but other than that, I always hear that it was a good aircraft. Yeah, it was highly rated by the pilots. I mean, some had flown like Herb Keatley, had flown the, the Hawk on exchange with the RAF and then flew the Mackie. And the Mackie was considerably cheaper. So for Kiwis, we were pretty mindful of that. What did we actually want the aeroplane to do? So the Mackie could do practically or could do everything we wanted to do. The Hawk was certainly a faster, better aeroplane, but it, it uh, could do more than we actually needed for advanced pilot training phase of the course, and then to be used as a fighter lead and trainer. So the Mackie uh, had certainly had the capability nicely laid out, well engineered. It had problems. Uh, I was not familiar with all of them, but certainly the engine was a disappointment. We had a lot of experience already from the Viper engine from the Strike Master, so seemingly it was going to be no problem to go on to the Viper uprated version that was in the Mackie. And unfortunately, I think the Rolls Royce side let the team the side down because they didn't carry on through life support for the engines that they had developed. Uh, and they had significant problems with those, I think, earlier on. Yeah. This Rolls Royce probably saw no money in it and didn't participate. Didn't, pursued any further. There were other things as well. I was just the other day looking at the one at New Zealand Warbirds at Ardmore and the chine on the nose wheel on the rubber, the re-engineered and uh, evenly and takeoff on the 
on the runway at Ohaki, on a very wet runway, two third, one third in the old day stuff, water would go straight from the nose to straight down the air intake and that would put the fire out, which is kind of disappointing because trying to go flying. So <laughs> by putting the chine on it, the, the water came off the wheel and it hit these little chines up the side and it displayed the water out. And instead of going in a little V-jet straight into the air intake, it just spread it on the ground. So there are things like that that happened, but right. it was a good jet. Yeah, very cool. In your long career, did you have any really scary moments or any accidents or anything like that in the air? I had no accidents and no ejections. There was a series of little minor type emergencies, but anything in the vampire was pretty docile thing anyway. You could put it back on the ground and with no engine failures in the mind that I had. Right. With a skyhook, you had the hook and that would pull the aeroplane at the rest of landing. And that dealt to that most of the time. And most of the time we flew with two drop tanks on the aeroplane. So if there was an undercarriage problem, you left to put the undercarriage up and landed on the tanks. And they just jacked the aeroplane up, threw the tanks away and replaced the tanks and you were good to go again. So it was a pretty rugged little aeroplane. I had a firelight come on in the Phantom and I, while I suspected that it was just a spurious warning, you shut the engine down and brought it back to land with one engine and did an arrested landing. And again, arrested landing you know, makes such a big difference. Both of those aeroplanes had drag chutes and so that would cure a lot of ills anyway if there was no arrested landing. So you could put the A4 down into vehicles like Napier with an a with a drag, a drag chute out the back and it catered pretty well getting in there. So right. okay. but no other major stuff. I guess I was pretty lucky. I never I used to say at Wickham, there's those who ground loop to Harvard and those who are about to. So I was lucky to be smart enough or lucky enough or none or both of those to not ground loop a Harvard, so I dodged all the pitfalls known to most pilots. I guess there was a little bit of those old pilots and bold pilots, but there are very few old bold pilots. So yeah, exactly. when you were younger, you took a lot of, yeah, let's go show the fans, you know, how good they like my flying stuff. And as you got off a bit older, you thought, you don't, you know what, you don't need to do that. So, and we went from a position of being a, a junior bog rat and you go and shine your ass anywhere you could when you became flight commanders or bosses you knew what the boggies are about to do so you put hurdles in their way to stop them or let them know that you were monitoring them because you'd been there done that you knew yeah. what they were going to do so <laughs> yeah so um, what year did you leave the air force 2001 okay i finished three years in the embassy in washington and came back and had a bit of gardening leave uh, I was at uh, one of the houses at Hobsonville where I looked for a house around here in Auckland. And I had three months to find a house and finish up and leave and dining in night near the end of 2001 and became a civilian after 36 years. <clears throat> and then went for a first job interview I'd had for a long, long time. Right. And did you, did you continue flying uh, in the civilian world? No. I hadn't really effectively flown since the end of 87 when I left Ohakia. I went right. to Wellington and did a couple of jobs there. And then I did the RCDS course in 1992 in London and I've, um, I flew in airplanes, but then I went back to Wellington 
and then became base commander Auckland, and probably for a good reason. They put a knucklehead in charge of um, base Auckland, uh, Jet Jock, and then at Ohaki, I think there was Rick Bolger initially, and then Brian Carruthers, P3 and and, uh, and helicopters, and they didn't know much about flying jets at Ohaki. So the, the message there was you're there to run the base, not go flying an aeroplane. You've had your life, you can get to it. Pilot, I was flying, I was flight attendants to do that stuff, not group captain. So keep your nose on the stuff that matters, not what you like to do. Right. Yeah, so uh, although I flew in P3 and Boeing and Hercules and choppers and stuff like that, I was never, never did a conversion course. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jim. This has been fascinating and it's been particularly good to hear your memories of the vampire it was a quite an, a, an awesome aircraft and it's been 50 years since it left the rnzf so it's nice to hear those stories yeah i had fond memories i can remember as a kid in levin they had air-to-air combat stuff over the over top of levin and i used to sit there and wonder at these damn things as they whizzed around the place and their ghostly sort of whiny sort of sound but they were always a great pleasure to fly and it's interesting when i flew the Hunter up in Singapore, never solo, but had a, a few sorties in a two-seater. It was very similar flying characters to a vampire. Quite smooth, easy and good to fly in close formation, quite responsive, aileron control and pitch control and the thing it was quite a nice little airplane to fly. And as long as you keep your eye on the fuel usage, so you plan things fairly carefully and watch it carefully all the damn time. It was a great learning platform with a good air-to-air firing capability, good air to ground stuff, and then keep you sharp and on your toes to make sure you you flew the sortie as you're supposed to and didn't get into situations that running out of gas or making sure you handle it properly. So the thing was tiny little fins on the rudder, you know, spinning was not permitted. I guess test pilots did in the old days, but found that the old booms used to warp a bit. Rudders not affecting, sometimes they couldn't get out of spins. So. Oh, right. It had very few vices, but it was a nice airplane to fly. It's old, and the, like I said, the engine centrifugal uh, layout of the old Goblin engine and the fuel control unit was archaic by comparison to airplanes. You could just slam the, the power up, and the, the, it would automatically compensate for it. Whereas the, you did that manually with the Vampire. But nevertheless, it was good to cut your teeth on that. I had a better pilot, I am sure of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Okay. Cheers, Dave. Cheers. Bye-bye. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.